Book of Acts, chapter twenty-one, verses eight to sixteen. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying with, while we staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's bill and bound his his own feet and hands and said, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the men who want this belt, and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he, when we hear this, we and the people there urge him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus." And since he will not be persuaded, we cease and say, let, him, "Let the will of the Lord be done." After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menasen of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Morning.、Um, For the critics and all the people who say that the Church of America is asleep or dying, I wish they could come here to see all of you who have left the comforts of your home to hear the Word of God. And I thank you for that. It's an encouragement to me, and I hope that you can be encouraged by the message today. A well-known preacher in Africa once said. We don't fear lions. We don't run away from lions anymore. But we fear men. We run away from men. You don't have to be a genius to understand what he meant by that statement. All the person has to do is turn on the evening news for thirty seconds, and you'll know exactly what he's talking about. But what happens when we have to actually come face to face with all of that anger and all of the evil that so easily thrives in our society? What happens if all of that rage is directed at you? Jesus warned his followers that the world is not for us, but is against us. And if you want to be his disciple, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow him. Meaning that if you want to be his disciple, you have to be willing to be a target of the world system and animosity, just like he was. So, how do we react when the world's hatred is spewed out in your direction? And how are we supposed to react? To this unprovoked attack, that most Christians inevitably will have to endure. Our reading recounts a threat that occurred against the early church, and also describes for us Paul's remarkable reaction as he faced the possibility of suffering for the Christ who he loved. 
Paul and his friends were traveling and stopping at different locations while collecting gifts and donations from Gentile churches that he had previously planted. And they were collecting these gifts with the sole purpose of bringing them to the church in Jerusalem in order to relieve the sufferings and hardships of the poor saints that were there. But the church in Jerusalem was made up of mostly converted Jews. And many of its members were still skeptical of the new Gentile believers because they did not have a Jewish background. And for that reason, Paul yearned to reach Jerusalem with these gifts in order to show the church there just how much the Gentile believers cared about their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. We pick up the reading in verse 8 of the chapter 21 in the book of Acts. This is Luke the physician writing. On the next day, we, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven with him. Luke tells us that as they traveled towards Jerusalem, they decided to first visit the house of Philip the evangelist. And if anyone remembers, the last time we saw Philip and Paul together was 20 years back in chapter 8. And Paul, who was still known by his former name Saul back then, was at that time a Jewish Pharisee and vigorously persecuting Christians. Luke informs us in chapter 8 that as Saul was breathing threats upon the church, Philip ran to Samaria to escape from Paul and the raging mob that was with him. But now, after nearly 20 years, Philip invites Paul to his own house and they get together and enjoy, enjoy each other's company. This friendship that Paul and Philip now have can only be explained through the outworking of God's power and the changing of Paul's heart. This gospel changes everything that it touches. It brings life where previously there was only death. It brings healing where formerly there was devastation. And it brings friendships where there was hatred and contempt. And Paul and Philip are able to mutually encourage one another because the power of Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between them and brought them together as friends. Verse 9 and 10. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We are told that Philip's four daughters were called by God for a special full-time service of ministry. And they were undoubtedly faithful in helping and ministering to individuals. We're also told that at Philip's house, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea to visit them at their home. Agabus was a faithful and honest messenger of God. We were first introduced to Agabus in chapter 11 of the same book. Years ago, Agabus stood up among the people and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. That was then. And now Agabus had a different message from God to declare. 
and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. The first thing we should note is that Agabus was not crazy because he acted out his prophetic message. It was actually common for the Old Testament prophets that they would dramatize their message. The prophet Isaiah shocked everyone when he went out barefoot and without clothes for three years while demonstrating how God was going to deal with the Egyptians. Jeremiah tied a book and a rock and then tossed the book and the rock into the Euphrates River, signifying the impending judgment against Babylon. And Moses lifted up a bronze statue of a snake, and the individuals who believed that God would save them would look upon it and be saved from the poisonous snake bites, and so on. But we have to admit that what Agabus did was a pretty amazing demonstration. The people who were there certainly thought so, because as soon as Agabus was done with his display, these so-called devoted Christians, who were very much looking forward to taking those gifts to their brothers and sisters in need, suddenly had a change of heart about going to Jerusalem. Verse 12 tells us, When we heard this message, we and the people there urged him not to go. The we refers to Luke, the physician, and a few of Paul's close friends who were accompanying him on his travels. They heard and saw Agabus' message, and they begged him not to go. They told him, Paul, there's no way that we're going to let you go. There's a mob that is looking to kill you, and we love you too much to let anything happen to you. So much for their commitment, right? But who could blame them? And who in the right mind will go to a place where he knows that an angry mob is waiting for him? Actually, Paul would go. Even if an angry mob was waiting for him, I said, we shall see. But before we look at Paul's incredible reaction to Agabus' prediction, a question needs to be asked. And if Agabus is a true prophet of God, who he is, by Paul disregarding the danger of his message, is he deliberately going against God's will in order to satisfy his own desire to go to Jerusalem? And are we to think that the greatest missionary that the world has ever known does not care about God's warnings or instructions? Think about it. Agabus, in verse 11, says, Paul, the Holy Spirit himself, is warning you that if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be bound in chains and handed over to the Gentiles. Verse 12 informs us that after seeing and hearing prophet's message, Paul's own loving friends urged him and begged him not to go. And finally, in verse 13, says, what are you, Paul says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
But in order to understand this message, we have to go back to the last chapter, where we see that before leaving Ephesus and stopping at Philip's house, Paul gathered the elders together there. And this is what he told them. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. Paul knew what would happen to him in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had already warned them of the dangers that was waiting for him there. But it was still God's desire that he would go. So he had made up his mind to go. And Agabus' warning was just that. A reaffirmation of the warning that Paul had already received from the Spirit. When you get there, Paul, be ready. Because a mob is coming after you and it will be brutal for you. So both Paul and Agabus were right in the discernment of the Holy Spirit's instructions. Unfortunately, we cannot say the same for Paul's friends, though. They deeply loved Paul, and in their attempt to keep him safe, they were actually getting in the way of the plan that God had for him in the spreading of his gospel when they urged him not to go. Paul was trying to be obedient to Christ, but his friends were getting in his way. Well, we are so blessed to have so many faithful Christians here in our church. I thank God for that every day. But sometimes, even the most devoted people couldn't make mistakes. We see that in our reading. For this reason, there isn't anything wrong with getting a second opinion from someone else and trying to discern the Holy Spirit's direction in your life. But how was he able to do that? How was Paul able to stay focused, dedicated, and fearless in the face of such looming danger, knowing that he could very well lose his life? The easy, the cop-out answer is, well, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. He was chosen for this type of ministry. But, but I know my Bible fairly well. And um, the Word of God says that the same Holy Spirit that gave Paul courage and strength during that time is the same Holy Spirit that flows through every believer's veins. But Paul's testimony seems a little bit different than the believers that I know. Listen to what Paul says. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. That was Paul's testimony. But that doesn't sound like the majority of people I know. 
as Christians, unfortunately, we always seem to look for the easy way out. And we have convinced ourselves that if we are suffering in any way, that there must be another way because God could not possibly have chosen that way for us. That may be true. We may find ourselves doing something that may not be in God's will. But Paul was being sent to Jerusalem by God while being warned that trouble was certainly there waiting for him. And Paul was anxious to get there. Now please, listen. I'm not saying that we should look for suffering when we minister because that is how we show our devotion. I'm not saying that. Because there are hundreds and thousands of great Christian ministries which God has blessed that don't have anything to do with suffering and pain. What, am I, what I am asking, though, and what I'm trying to figure out is why the majority of Christians, of us, shrink back and run away from persecution and oppression in ministry, even though we know that it may be God's will for us to go through it. While Paul was anxious to meet it and die in that persecution for the sake of Christ. Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's just, that's Paul. Maybe he was just one of those individuals that was much more courageous and much more faithful than we could ever imagine being. Maybe that's it. Paul was different. But that still doesn't explain an entire host of people whose faithful testimony we have in our Bibles. The book of Hebrews gives us a list in chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Following along, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And I know what people say. I know what people think. They say, oh, they were so powerful, that's why God has a list for them in our Bibles. And that really doesn't make any sense. Looking at the life of Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot went to study and went to the Archa Indians in Ecuador. Whenever somebody, someone went to that tribe of Indians, they would most likely lose their lives. And that was a known fact. But Jim wanted to give them the gospel because they had no knowledge of the Holy One. This is, the one, this is one of the things 
that he wrote. I'm sorry, this is one of the writings that he received before going there. Why are you going across the world to preach to those savages? You have so many gifts in teaching and preaching. Surely you're going to be wasting your time in preaching to those savages. He actually received that. He responded in his journal with this. Surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must must deny their own love to share in the statement of his. Send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. Impel them by these voices. I dare not stay home while these Indians perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written in the bank books and the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the souls of mammon. God, God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to this. Years later, Jim Elliot and the four men, men went to that tribe and lost their lives. But as, as a result of his story, and the story of those four men, thousands of other believers have since been encouraged to take risks in spreading the gospel. Not to mention that a few years later, the wives of those five men who lost their lives went to the same place to those very Indians who killed their husbands. And they were able to lead, faithfully lead, almost every single one of those Indians, to Christ. One last one. David Livingston was a missionary to Africa. He went there on his own, compelled that the Lord was calling him there. When he was first preparing to leave, he wrote a letter to the London Missionary Society that said, So powerfully convinced am I that this is the will of God, that I should go go to Africa. I will go, go no matter who opposes me. Soon after he got there, he was traveling through the land and got mauled by a lion. But he stayed there. And after years of service, he went back to London to visit. And all kinds of ministers and pastors welcomed him, government officials. The press wanted to talk with him to hear about his stories. But whenever he got a chance to speak to them, he would direct their attention to Africa. He said, I beg you to go to Africa. I know that in a few years, we'll be cut off from that country. But it is now open. Do not let it shut again. And I'm going to go back there. And it is for you to carry out the word which I have begun. I leave it to you. 
He went back to Africa, and years went by. No one heard anything from him. So a journalist was commissioned to go there to find him, if he was alive, and then encourage him to come back. When the journalist finally tracked him down, the journalist said this, Mr. Livingston, I presume, you need to come back to share all of your stories. There are people who are there waiting to honor you. People who love you the most. Family, friends, people who are closest to you. They want you to come back. David Livingston looked at him and said, God has called me to Africa. I am staying here. Not long after that, David Livingston was traveling with a group of people that he ministered to and accepted Christ. One morning, David didn't go out as usual. And as one of them went to find him and found, found him on his knees with his face in his hands in a posture of prayer where he had died in communion with God. It would have been very easy for these natives to bury him there, divide up his possessions, and go on. But they had such respect for this man who had given his life to God in their country that they decided to walk through dangerous land for thousands of miles in order to get to the coast so they could send his body back to England where he could receive a proper burial. But before they took his body out of Africa, they removed his heart and buried it there in Africa because that is where he had given his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Were these individuals courageous? Were they dedicated? Godly? Yes, absolutely they were. There are so many others like them. So how were they able to get there? And how can I get that type of conviction in my own life? It is hard to remain faithful in, uncom in uncomfortable circumstances. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in explaining what faith is, says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Consequently, the reason for our struggle is the fact that we as Christians are called to trust something that has not happened yet. It has not happened yet, but it's been promised by God that it will come to pass. And we struggle because we have not fully understood that our faith is really grounded in the faithfulness that he first shows and renders towards us. Again, our faithfulness, the one that you and I have, is grounded in him being faithful towards you. In other words, can I trust him to do what he told me he would do? Even when things don't appear very promising to me. 
And faith always begins by looking at the cross. And there's no doubt that the cross of Jesus is the absolute, irrefutable proof and most convincing evidence of God's love for us in all of Scripture. The cross is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote one of the promises that drove him to be motivated follower that he became. And there's, there's a promise that is found right in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it goes like this. Romans 8, verse 32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning that giving his son was a difficult thing for the father to do. He infinitely loved Jesus. Jesus did not deserve to be killed. And even though that was the inconceivable thing to do, the father gave, it, gave him to us anyway. And taking, care, taking care of us is an easy thing for God to do. Do you actually think that after doing all that he has done in Jesus Christ, that he's going to abandon you? And will he not move heaven and earth in your future to help you and to always be by your side? This is one of the promises that Paul lived by. But trusting in God does not mean that we suffer grief and our hearts do not ache. We hurt. What it does mean, though, is that in the midst of our heartache and grief, we know that he is ultimately in control. And we are able to confidently say, Lord, I know that you're in control of this dreadful event. I do not understand why you allowed it to happen, but I trust you. I trust you because you infinitely love expressed in the giving of your son. And I trust you because I know that you are sovereign and working all things out in my life for my good. That's his promise. Now, I read testimonies from a handful of extremely faithful warriors earlier. And on an infinitely smaller scale, my wife called me at work a few weeks ago and informed me that a family that we knew was going to lose their place of residence. They're going to be homeless because at least on their apartment was up and the house that they were supposed to move into was not ready. It would not be ready for them for a few weeks. My wife faithfully offered for them to stay at our house and then she called me. She asked me what I think about that. I said, sure. 
No hesitation, sure. She responded by saying, but don't you want to think about it, maybe pray about this situation? You know, we do have a few kids. I told her that there really isn't anything for us to pray about. God tells us in his word that we need to help if we know that there is a brother or sister who's in need. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. And God's word also tells us that it is more blessed for us to give than to receive. So I told her, either way, there really isn't any decision to make. The decision has already been made for us. We have to help. The family stayed with us for almost two weeks. And one night during their stay, we were talking. And I told them about my headaches. I've had these headaches four, five times a, day, a week for the last 15 years. The wife of the husband who was staying with us said, What a coincidence! I had headaches for 25 years. I got you beat. But I don't have them anymore. Wait a minute. What do you mean you don't have them anymore? I asked. I know how these kinds of headaches work. And I know that they just, when they go away, they, they always come back. Anyway, I went to her doctor. I took some new medicine. I haven't had a headache in three weeks. Was that a co coincidence? I struck a luck, maybe? No. Actually, God was fulfilling his promise that it is more of a blessing to give than to receive. And there are hundreds of other places that we go to be encouraged by his unending love through the promises that we could claim as our own. The apostle knew about God. And he knew about his promises. And while everyone around him faltered, he was able to stay the course because he knew that even if everyone else failed, God will remain faithful because he said so in his word. And if you have been numbered with the elect, if you have, been, if you have given your life to Christ, he's never going to fail you. Back to verse 13 in our reading. A very interesting thing happened after Paul declared that he was ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We're reading verses 14 through 16. And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. 
So after all that urging and all that begging from his close friends, Paul continued on to Jerusalem and his friends all went with him. They saw his conviction and he gave them courage to join him because courage and godly conviction conviction is always contagious. Do you know how a little extra courage Conviction and trust in his word by us would impact the community and the world around us? No, you don't. But I would love, certainly love to find out. For Paul, there's no question about it that his trust in God's word and the conviction that he gave him carried him through every in all circumstances, and even change the doubts of his friends. Christians today, all over the world, are being tortured and killed for the faith that they have in Jesus. That type of persecution has not reached our country. It hasn't reached here yet. So you don't have to worry about dying. But do you love him enough Are you willing to live for him? The Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord are searching throughout the entire world, seeking for the man, woman, or even child whose heart is surrendered to him. Is that you? Have you prepared yourself with prayer and a careful study of God's word in order to make that happen? Stay awake and be ready. And he'll do things in your home and in your life that you've never dreamed of doing. And then you'll hear those glorious words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into your rest. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word this morning. It is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Thank you so much for transforming us by the power of your spirit. Lord, help us to be more faithful, more convicted, and, 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 and more courageous so that the world around us will see your power in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.